Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by the Chartered College of Teaching and listeners like you. To support our work and to gain access to exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. Hi, I'm Dr. Megan Samaraki, a professor at Rhode Island College. And I'm Dr. Cindy Nebel, a professor at Washburn University. And we are together, though not literally together. We're in our (laughs) respective homes talking about one of our research projects that we've been doing at Washburn University. And so Cindy's really been taking the lead on executing this monstrosity of a research project. And so I'm going to let Cindy explain to you what it is that we're doing. Yeah, so this project started um, with me talking to the head of our Woo 101 courses, which at Washburn, Woo 101 um, is our freshman seminar course. So every freshman that starts at the university takes this class, which includes a lot of sort of introduction to the university stuff time management and study skills and so um, some of the things that were being taught in that class were uh, less evidence-based than what um, we talk about and so I went to our Dean of Libraries Dr. Alan Behrman and just told him hey we have this website let me show it to you we've got this project and um, it was great he was very very excited about it and so um he basically said, when can we start doing this? Yeah. And so we thought, well, that's really great. We should start teaching all of these first year students about effective learning strategies and about how to get them to utilize the strategies. And at this point, I mean, I think we had an idea that this was true, but we really then realized there's not a whole lot of research out there about how to get students to actually use effective learning strategies. So we know what strategies tend to work and in what scenarios. And we have decades, in some cases, even over a century worth of research showing that these things are effective. But those experiments involve when the students actually do it, does that help them learn? The question that we're being presented with here is, can we get students to use those strategies on their own and then those strategies would lead to learning. And there's not a whole lot out there. And in the last episode, I presented a paper by Dr. Jennifer McCabe that was published in 2011 that really showed, you know what, students do have a difficult time, even at the college level, identifying what strategies are going to be the most effective for them to learn, even after being taught about the strategies in their classes. And so we were presented with this sort of I guess problem, but a good problem, a research problem, a research question where we said, how do we get students to learn about effective study strategies and then take those study strategies with them home and actually start to use them on their own to then improve learning? It's a big endeavor. Yeah, and this was a really great um, situation to be in in order to do that. The students in these classes were already being taught, hey, you've come from high school where you've used... Um, certain study strategies that worked for you but this is college now and things are going to be different and so that same message we could basically take and apply to now these evidence-based study strategies moving forward we needed to come up with a research design uh, that was going to work for this and so 
in order to do that effectively, we needed to have sort of some intervention sections as well as some control sections um, in order to make sure that students weren't just getting that message and getting the old study strategies and those were working. We didn't want to overtake all of the classes. What we needed was to say is, is this new intervention, these new study strategies, if we compare them to what's been taught before, do we see improvement in all sorts of things is what we were looking at. So we um, we looked at midterm grades and final grades, um, as well as asked some survey questions about how much they were using these strategies. Yeah, so it's really important to make sure we have a control group, right? So from the from an experimental standpoint, we want to be able to con compare the intervention group to a group of students not getting that intervention and just getting business as usual. Now, of course, this means that we're not teaching the effective study strategies to all of the students but at the same time prior to this none of the students were getting these effective learning strategies so we're moving in the right direction we don't want to just go in and start changing things without a comparison group because we then won't know why learning or performance on midterms, performance on exams in different classes changed if we don't have that control group. It's quite possible that if we had just changed everything, the next group of students that came in might have done better on their grades just because they happen to be a group of students that were always going to do a little bit better in terms of grades. They might have done a little bit worse and we might have thought, oh no, the intervention didn't work, but maybe they always were going to get a little bit of a lower GPA. We need that control group so that we can make the comparison and make sure that what we're doing is actually helpful because while we know that the study strategies work in controlled settings, that does not mean that when a student tries to use them on their own, that it's necessarily always going to help. We really need to make sure that this intervention is helping before we just start changing everything across the board and effectively changing the entire curriculum for the entire university in that in that opening course which is so important so at this point ideally what we could do is take the i think there were 17 sections in the first semester that we did this is that does that sound right to you megan that sounds yeah that sounds about right okay so ideally we would take those 17 sections and just split them in half and randomly assign these eight sections would be in the control these nine sections would be in the intervention and now we'll we'll run it and we'll compare them but unfortunately, in the real world and working with real classrooms, that's just not how things work. So we were told, you know, there are a few professors who were very set in their ways and wanted to continue to do things the way that they had done them in the, in the past. And so those needed to be automatically in the control group. And we needed to identify them as being this, the professors who didn't want to change because they're not truly randomly assigned now. And we need to make sure that if those let's say it was three, if those three professors um, are pulled out, do we see the same results? Right. And we also had some situations where we had one professor who was teaching three sections. Well, we couldn't have them do a control section and then two intervention sections. That would be tremendously confusing and there would probably be bleed over in what they were doing. So instead, all three of those sections had to be in one particular group, either control or intervention. So Megan did a lovely job of going through and figuring out exactly how we needed to randomize um, these control and intervention groups. And eventually we had our, our two sections of who was going to be in, in which one. Yeah, and there were even some sections that were special. So a group of a class that's made up all of 
students who are intending to become nurses, for example, they might all be grouped together or the group of honors students or a group of veterans. And we don't really know if those sections are going to act the same way. And it's not as though we had 10 sections of veterans and we could randomly assign five and five. So we had to be very careful to try and balance the quote unquote standard sections and the quote unquote special sections so that we can look at just the special sections and just the standard sections and and all of that good stuff. So all of that's just to say it's kind of a mess when you're you know working in the real world and there's a reason why people don't do these like massive classroom studies all the time uh, because it really does become kind of a mess when you're trying to control everything. We'll maybe talk a little bit more about messiness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what we did um, is we went to the we went to Washburn. So um, this is a collaboration um, between Cindy and myself and Dr. Yana Weinstein. And she went to Washburn University at one point, And I also went and we trained the instructors who were going to be in the intervention to execute the intervention. We just took three weeks of six different classes and taught, created an intervention where the students were being taught about one strategy per class. And they always were presented with the strategy. They watched the video, those cheesy videos that we have on our website that are just sort of designed to capture attention and get people paying attention to the concept of what is spacing, what is retrieval. Then they went through the posters and the PowerPoints that go along with it. This is where the professor teaching can slow down and actually cover the content of the strategies and really dig into some of the details. The videos do go very quickly. The idea is just to introduce the idea. Um, And then there was an activity where the students attempted to utilize the strategy in the classroom. So they might have had their own classroom content from a different class. So maybe some of the students were taking chemistry 101 and they might use their chemistry material to practice retrieval. Or the professor sometimes gave the students their, you know, sort of a preset of things to read and then try to answer questions. We tried to make that as systematic as we could, but of course, across different professors teaching different things with different classes, it gets a little messy, but the idea is that they're always doing an activity with the students, helping them learn how to do the strategy in the classroom. And then the students were always given an assignment. And the assignment was basically to take that learning strategy and execute it with one of their other classes. So to take that chemistry example, the students who are taking chemistry 101, they might say, okay, I'm gonna, I just learned about elaborative interrogation. I'm gonna do elaborative interrogation with my chemistry work. I'm studying for chemistry, but this is also an assignment for my first year seminar, my first first year experience course. So they're getting to double dip a little bit, which in my experience teaching this, it was not part of the randomized control, but in my experience, they kind of like to double dip and they, they sort of like to see that they're integrating these things across, you know, across in their other classes. And so they did this for all six of the strategies. Yeah, and the uh, training that we gave to instructors was really important here because we were not only just teaching them sort of what the intervention looked like, but also about the strategies themselves. Um, The instructors for these courses were... I mean, from all over the universities. So there were some librarians teaching the courses. There were, I mean, Megan mentioned the fact that we had special sections. So there was like a nursing section where one of the nursing faculty was teaching it. So these weren't people who were necessarily experts in cognitive science by any means. And so we had to tell them like, what is dual coding and when does it work? 
so that they could effectively guide the students in how to use that in their classes. So not only were we teaching them um, what they needed to do for the intervention itself, um, but also uh, what these strategies actually were so they could sort of guide some in-class discussion about them and answer questions and that kind of thing. Yeah, and we think in general it's really important for any teacher, professor who's teaching these strategies to really understand what what the strategy is and at least a little bit about why it works. You don't necessarily need to be, become an expert in cognitive science and know all of the literature, but to have an idea of why the strategy works can be really helpful because as we've talked about in previous episodes, using the strategies effectively can look very different on the surface and yet it's the underlying process that really matters. Similarly, you can have students doing things that look very similar. Some of the students might be doing an effective process. Some of the students might be doing an ineffective process. So really focusing on what is the strategy and a little bit about why that strategy works so that the professors who were teaching the intervention could explain this to the students. And then as students had questions or when students were practicing doing this on their own, they could be looking for those effective processes because good learning is driven by good processing. So from here this the instructors had the intervention that they needed to do and as Megan mentioned that happened over the course of three weeks six class periods and it was during weeks like three four and five or four five and four five and six I believe of the semester so that they weren't getting it right um, out the gate. Um, they had a couple weeks but then we wanted to make sure that they had enough time to actually utilize these strategies as the semester went on so the the instructors were all sort of reminded oh hey it's time to start doing that like let's let's make sure that's working and um, we contacted them and made sure that they uh, didn't have any questions um, as they were teaching those strategies and then as I mentioned um, we collected midterm grades and final grades so that we could look at those and then there was also a survey where students were asked about uh, how much they were using each of these strategies so we have all of these data we've collected. It's at, at this point, it's it's last summer, the summer of 2018, and we have all of this data, and we're we're going through it. And it, you know, this is a huge project. Up to this point, we've been doing a lot of work across time zones, across universities. Tons of faculty are involved, libraries involved. We have to thank the Overdeck Family Foundation immensely for providing funding for this. It wasn't cheap. And of course, you know, the granting agency is, is helping and we're going back and forth with them. So we sit down to analyze these data and the first thing we do is run to see, you know, is there a difference between the intervention section and the control section in terms of their final GPA? And the answer is no. There's no difference wow. at all. <laughs> Not good. And I mean, you know, this is this is a tall order. We're asking, can we teach professors to teach cognitive science to first-year students, get them to understand it, and then get them to use it in a way that's effective so that their grades improve? This is a really, really, this is a big question. And we were asking about transfer of a learning strategy and transfer of anything is really hard to find. So we were disappointed, but we thought, okay, let's let's dig in and take a look. And And one of the things that we had asked the students what, what, what we had information, I should say, what we had information on them is whether or not they were first generation college students. And Washburn is actually a great place to look at first generation college students because about half of our sample, almost exactly half, 
were first generation while the other half were non-first generation. And you can define first generation in a lot of ways. At Washburn, it was defined as uh, a student who neither of whose parents had finished their bachelor's degree. Okay, so students who have parents who have finished a bachelor's degree and students who have parents who have not, either because they never started or maybe they started for a little bit but stopped. And there's there's theoretical reasons to expect that first-generation college students might look different from non-first-generation college students. There's a whole lot going on there. And, and one of my students, Krissa uh, DiPietro, is really interested in this issue and is doing a lot of work in that area. And I have a number of first-generation college students in my lab. And so this was one of the things we wanted to look at. And when we split up the students in the intervention and control, also by first generation and non-first generation, we found a really interesting interaction. The students who were not first generation students, in other words, the ones whose parents had gone to college and finished, at least one of their parents, had finished a bachelor's degree. The intervention helped them. Those students had higher GPAs compared to the control group. But, and this is this is the sad part, when we look at the first generation students, we actually see the opposite, where the students who got the intervention had a slightly worse GPA compared to the control group. And this is why we're not seeing anything when we average across, because half of our sample is first generation and half of them are non-first generation. Everything evens out to make it look like there's nothing there. When in reality, we have effects where the intervention seems to be helping some students, but maybe even hurting a different set of students. Now, we have to say this with caution. We did not necessarily predict that interaction, and we need to run the, the study again, which we're in the middle of doing, to make sure that this replicates. It's quite possible that it was just a fluke. Sometimes, just by chance, we find results. And so before we sort of ring our bell and say, these effective study strategies and the intervention helps this group but hurts that group, we need to make sure that that's actually true. So we have to say this with a little bit of, we have to kind of put a pin in it, and we'll definitely continue to talk about this as, as we get more results. But it looks like, for now, the intervention might be helping students who already have a sense of what college is about and have support systems uh, from their families at home or at least if they're living away from home, you know, their families who are, are supporting them as they're away. It seems like it helps them, but for some reason it might be doing something with first-generation college students that is making things a little bit more difficult. And we can hypothesize about why that might be, and we definitely need more research to figure out what's going on there because certainly we don't want universities across the country to start implementing an intervention that helps some students but actually hurts other students. That would be really bad. And so, I mean, at this point, we're thinking, oh, thank goodness we didn't just say, okay, let's do this everywhere. We know the strategies are good. Let's just put the intervention anywhere we can because we might have been harming those first-generation college students if we did that. Yeah, so I think we were surprised when we saw this result. Um, 
it, I mean, we weren't expecting it at all. And so um, as a group, we were all very surprised uh, when I brought this back to the library folks and said, so I want to show you what we found. They weren't surprised at all. Um, and they said they see this a lot with their first generation students, that it might be sort of like a, a cognitive load issue that uh, they have a lot of new things that they're learning all at once because they're in this new environment compared to the non-first generation students who are more familiar with even terms. Um, so one of the hypotheses that we have uh, that obviously needs a lot more research, but one of the hypotheses is that maybe even just the terminology that we're giving them, um, things like dual coding and interleaving, that um, maybe those words by themselves are just one more thing that they have to remember and it's too much. Or that uh, the non-first generation students have a better sense of how to implement these things strategically, whereas the first generation students are possibly trying to use all of the strategies for everything that they're doing, which again would be too much. We have no idea. That's all speculation at this point. But those are some ideas that, that folks in the library had. So as Megan mentioned, that was um, last year. So the 2017-2018 school years when we found that result. And so now we are replicating um, and sort of extending findings um, for the 2018-2019 school year. We didn't make a lot of changes between those two school years. Um, a lot of that was because we need to see if that finding replicates. Um, but some of it, some of the changes that we did make were things like just cleaning up um, some of the activities. The faculty members, when we talked to them, said that they they felt like they didn't always know what to talk about in a class discussion. Um, so we we have a lot of class discussions built into the intervention. And so we gave them a lot more ideas of possible topics that you could um, have. Megan, can you remember any other changes that we made for this year? Well, I think we took what we what we had learned from the faculty where they said some of the strategies just were more confusing to them when they started to teach it. So, of course, while we were there training, it made sense. And then for some of the strategies, the faculty said, when I got in the classroom, I was good. Retrieval practice, I knew what to do with that. I, They seemed really, um, like they really had a handle on that one in spacing. Whereas some of the other strategies, such as dual coding, they weren't so sure what to do or what to say. And so even just retraining the faculty, some of the faculty that were in the first round of data collection were also in the second round because they tend to teach this every year even just sort of re-going over that with them and then also having those now veterans of the intervention in the room with the newer people, I think made the training go a little bit more smoothly and made it a little bit easier to implement. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is we just have more data in terms of survey responses. So were the students using these things early on? Were they using? Are they using them later? And we can kind of dig in and try to look at that. Some of that is just because of messiness of trying to do big projects. Um, it's really, really hard to collect a ton of data across a whole semester when there's a lot of different things going on. So we're all teaching our own classes. The library folks have their things going on. The professors who are in those classrooms are not just teaching the Woo 101. They're also teaching other classes. There's just a lot of things to keep track of. And it's very difficult to keep track of 
this extra component. You, it's almost like we were all a little cognitively overloaded when we're <laughs> when we're doing this. Yeah, I mean, and in the middle of all of that, we also had some personnel changes, right? So new people are coming on to the project, and people are leaving the project in the middle, and um, so there was a lot sort of happening uh, simultaneously. And so, yeah, the, me- the the data from that 2017, 2018 intervention got to be a little bit messy. There were also a few other things that we collected data on, like personality measures and, and other things um, that we sort of changed some of those extra things for the new data. So we're looking at a motivation scale this time um, and a couple of other things like that. Yeah, and so I think, I mean, we're learning a lot about how to try to teach students to use strategies effectively to improve their academic success as measured by GPA, which of course is messy. Um, some of that has to do with attendance and you know other things, but that's sort of the best we can, at least it seems like it's the best we can do on a very, very large scale. It's something that is at least systematic in terms of the numbers. Um, but we're also learning a lot about running big projects and doing live it's not even classroom data, it's whole school. It's a whole school project, right? So maybe, Cindy, you can talk a little bit about some of the things that you've learned from um, being, being, you know, in the in the weeds on this one. <laughs> yeah, so having been at Washburn, I mean, anybody who wants to tackle a project of this scale, right? So I'm working with, not within my own department, right? So I'm working with um, folks in the library, and then there are 17 sections, so maybe you know something like 12 to 15 different instructors who are actually implementing this intervention, um, and then the students, right? So it's a whole like layers upon layers upon layers of people who all need to be on the same page. So um, the the first thing that's been super beneficial has been the excellent administrative support. So um, I mentioned Dr. Alan Beerman is the dean of libraries at Washburn, and he has really I mean, allowed me to sort of take the reins and run with this. Um, but the other folks who are in the library who have, have been instrumental in making all of it happen. In addition, I have a couple of really excellent graduate students who are helping out um, on this project. And so as we've moved along, they've been sort of the point people with the instructors. So they've um, sent many, many emails, fielded questions, sent questions to me as um, faculty have them, that kind of thing. So they've been very, very helpful. Uh, Obviously, the training was very useful for the faculty members themselves because it allowed us to have faces with names so they knew who to contact when, when things came up. But then it's really been, you know, a change from from last year to this year is we had um, these biweekly meetings uh, for everyone who was in charge of the project in some way to sit down and say, okay, where are we? What do we need to to do next? Um, So that we weren't losing track of anything that needed to be going on because there were so many moving parts all the time. So there's a few people who have been just super helpful and extremely supportive that that we should think I'm sure we're not going to be able to remember everybody but Alan Bierman comes to mind right the the dean of libraries who has been just extremely supportive and helpful and then James Barclaw who has been extremely helpful in the library um, Cindy do you want to mention your graduate students oh yeah so that's uh, Anna Lima and Delaney Atterbury um, they've been I mean they're the data gurus for this project too so all of the data that has come in they have been in charge of cleaning which is 
such a big task. <laughs> a big task. I hope they're learning a lot about big projects and data management and statistics and all of that um, of that good stuff. Yeah, so it's been a really big project. It's really exciting. I think it's an extremely important question, and I, I assume that others, at least some others, would agree. Um, and so we'll, we'll be really excited to continue to see if this effect replicates, if it does, to dig in and say, you know, what is going on? How can we make sure that we're not disadvantaging first-generation college students? Because that's certainly not the goal at all. The goal is to help as many people as we can and to try to help everybody improve. And so um, we're, we're looking forward to more data and to writing this thing up. Yep. It's exciting. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is funded by the Chartered College of Teaching and listeners like you. To support our work and to gain access to exclusive content, check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.